welcome to a bonus episode of Pod Like a Hole. Uh, because we also get a little tired from time to time of just hearing our own voices, Steve called up his friend and fellow podcaster, Mike Spriegel, of the Burning Bridges podcast to really push how far we can talk about one album for four freaking episodes. Um, on Friday or Saturday of this week, and you can hold me to it, uh, weather permitting, and if the radio gods are with me, uh, you, the dear listener, will get the concluding conversation of the Fragile Era. The entire pod whole gang will go through things falling apart, the live record and DVD uh, titled All That Could Have Been, and the, the, the bonus disc that came along with it. Eh, it was a standalone disc too, but you really had to go hunting for it, but it, that one's titled Still. It's kind of Nine Inch Nails Unplugged, or as Steve likes to call it, Billy Joel's The Stranger version of Nine Inch Nails. Um, and if that wasn't enough, we're also going to talk about the Fragile Deviations extra tracks that were included on that $80 vinyl that uh, only the Milton Bradleys of the world probably bought. We didn't. We borrowed a copy from a friend. So before that episode hits, uh, we wanted to take the time to give you a little fun phone call between Steve and Mike. Me and Eric are nowhere to be found on this episode, so everyone gets a break from us for a couple days. We hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Actually, yes, uh, dear listeners, this is a, uh, a special segment that will be part of our barrage of uh, fragile-related material. I have on the, uh, the podcast, Mr., and I've never said his name out loud, and you'll learn why in a second. It's, uh, is it Mike Spriegel? It's Spriegel, but it's okay. I got about 40 plus years of people mangling the last name. So after a while, you kind of die inside when anybody says it. And you just don't care anymore. Well, well I'm glad. I'm glad that you finally accepted it. But uh, you, yes, uh, my, yeah, Mike you, and I are uh, we're pals from uh, we're internet buddies from the Brian Michael Bendis comic message board, if I believe correctly, is where it began. Uh yeah, it's. I started on that board in the early 2000s, and I was a lurker, a very quiet guy on there, and then eventually decided to start contributing as a useful member of society. And lo and behold, I'm a not as alienating of a person as I'd like to think I am. Well, that's, that's always good. And that's good for, you know, a lot of Nine Nails fans to, to make that evolution. <laughs> we all, uh, I think at some points, are a little, little antisocial. So. Indeed. But, uh, yeah, that... Uh, that that group went by the wayside in that place, and then uh, we all, a few of us landed in different spots on the internet elsewhere, and some have met in real life and some haven't, but uh, it's a good little group of uh, diverse internet pals, so... I think a lot of people knock the internet thinking that, you know, when you have like message boards or when you have just any sort of weird online community that there's an oddness about it. And the thing is, there's normal people here. It's not to say you don't get your nut jobs on there, but on the other hand, you do have just people with amazing insight, intellect, and experiences. And as long as you're willing to be somebody that's open to listen, you meet a lot of amazing people on there. Exactly. And then you realize one day, you know, uh, one of the places that you, you still are connected is on Facebook and you're you're saying, Hey, I'm I'm trying to do this nine inch nails podcast with my buddies and then you realize that some of your friends with mutual interests also love nine inch nails as well. So uh 
how that how how Nine Inch Nails happened for you? It's kind of interesting in the sense that with Nine Inch Nails, uh, when they started gaining prominence was when I was entering high school back in. Uh, 1990, uh, with, of course, Pretty Hate Machine. And I would say that I liked Nine Inch Nails as a teenager, but I liked it in the way that a teenager would like something like that. Because when you're a teenager, you're angry. You like loud, you like aggressive music if you're going through a lot of stress and adversity in your life, which I was at the time. I had a miserable childhood for the most part when it came down to my teen years. Uh, just divorced parents, a lot of depression. So when you have music like that, you glom onto that pretty easily. So uh, between where that, did, where, going, did you, uh, where did you grow up? I uh, grew up in uh, Minnesota in the metro area. And are you still there today? I still am. I'm in a suburb of the metro area, but nonetheless, Minnesota's kind of Minnesota. If you're in the metro area, it's this amazingly just – it, I, I don't want to use the word progressive, but it is a very interesting and diverse mixture of people. When you leave the metro area of Minnesota, it's nothing but farmland, and then that's when you get to a very conservative base of people. But, uh, yeah, it, I love Nine Inch Nails in the sense that, yeah, it was great loud music. I remember uh, when uh, Lollapalooza 94 uh, was being a pay-per-view. I remember paying for that all three days worth. I remember watching and recording, and I still have it on VHS, the Nine Inch Nails performance from Lollapalooza. Or not Lollapalooza, I'm sorry, uh, Woodstock that mm -hmm. year of 94. So it was something I came, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, interest in. But I listened to the music. I don't think I understood the music. It wasn't until The Fragile came out that I understood Nine Inch Nails is probably the best way to put it. So the the album that uh, a lot a lot of people I think I I don't think it's a I guess it kind of might be a divisive album. I feel like it's either your favorite album or it's not. And I know there's of course that can only be one or the other, right? But uh, I, the I feel that for Nine Inch Nails fans, if the fra like they either love the Fragile or the Fragile's either just kind of there or it's you know they, they, it's not as heralded as is uh the other 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 uh, as others of us feel but i feel like if, if even if you like the fragile 75 percent of the way then it's absolutely your favorite album and you like it 100 percent. i feel like there's no in between yeah i i think one of the funny things is whenever over the past let's say 19 years since the fragiles come out anytime a new nine inch nail album comes out one of the things you often see on you know comments on like various news articles or on various websites is oh you know why can't they make more music like they did for downward spiral and i think downward spiral definitely connected with a lot of different people but i think the one thing I loved about Nine Inch Nails is that their music evolved as Trent evolved. And I think what really was the way my perspective on the Fragile always is, is this, is that when the Fragile came out, I think it helped inform me of all of Nine Inch Nails' previous albums. Like, I was listening to their music before. When you listen to an album, so like, you know, Broken, you listen to, of course, Downward Spiral, you hear the music, but you don't understand it. And I think when the mm -hmm. Fragile came out, it was one of probably the lowest points in my life. Um, just a series of horrible relationships, absolutely critical, crucial debt drove me to move back home. I almost remember becoming an alcoholic around that time. And when The Fragile came out, I think what made me love that is probably one of my all-time favorite albums is that you don't have where it's just noisy all the time. You know, I mean, and I'm not saying that that yeah. was always Nine Inch Nails' modus operandi, but you listen to it. 
I always feel that with the downward spiral, when you got to the song Hurt at the end, that's that's really when Trent hits the bottom. In 1999, mm-hmm. Trent, that's the Trent right there that's still mired in, let's say, drug addiction. He doesn't know if he's worth saving or not. You see, He sees that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but he doesn't know if he's worth getting there. I think there's a very whimsical side to the fragile when you listen to some of the songs on there where you kind of hear a guy that, you know, there almost sounds like there's some hope, but he doesn't know if he's almost worth it. And I think with the fragile, what made it such great is such a great album is that it's definitely, I think where Trent was probably in touch with himself the most. I think he did a lot of loud music before that, but not only, I think did he pretty much help illustrate who he was as a person at that exact point in time, when you listen to any music that was put out after The Fragile, you hear how The Fragile influenced all of their future music in so many different ways. Yeah, The Fragile had so much going on, and it goes in so many different directions. And I would never say it meanders. I would just like, there's, I, I think every minute of the double album is worthwhile. And it, it manages to be an album that sounds like it goes, it's really. It's interesting sonically, like some of those songs can feel very claustrophobic and other songs sound like uh, they could go like you, there's no gravity and you jump into the air and you keep going forever. It's very like some of the sound really seems to travel. And I think that as some of the albums that came out afterwards, like on, on uh, you know, there are some like some a, a funk robo banger type thing, like the big come down on there. Well, you're going to mm-hmm. get you're going to get more of that uh, almost 15 years later on like hesitation marks. And, uh, you know, with the, some of the more experimental, just uh, glitchy uh, instrumental songs, you hear some more of that on Year Zero in a few years. So definitely I feel like there's a, a couple of different jump-off points for sounds they explored later that uh, started in The Fragile. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you listen to a lot of the instrumentals that are around there, and I think that's where Trent truly realized that as a composer how great he was at putting out just moody, atmospheric music. And when you listen to some of the later stuff, I mean, like one of the things when you listen to like an album, like uh, you know, their next true follow-up album was With Teeth, when you listen to All the Love mm-hmm. in the World and you hear just that mm-hmm. melodic beginning, you know that that's where that started, was back in the fragile right there. You know, just and also that kind of... Some, and- Oh, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but to the, that yeah, same song, the end, the end where he kind of gets goes into like a, almost like a Prince kind of crooning breakdown mm-hmm. on the end of all the love in the world, and you have some of that like there's on the fragile. There's a couple of different parts where there's just some like real like sexy background vocals going on and stuff, and you're like that's you know that's I think that's where that started. It really like, started uh, to just to dive in deep on the how much they could do uh, as a like they there was no the fragile came out and Nine Snails didn't have a label. From that point on, they were not industrial. They weren't. Uh, they weren't like some like dark uh, electro band. They definitely shed all their labels with the fragile. Yeah, they didn't want to be in a single genre. I think one song in particular, uh, you know, when you mentioned all the love in the world and just the harmonies that they had at the end, I think of like uh, where is everybody in the sense mm-hmm. that you know when you listen, to, let's say the harmonies and the vocals on that, you know, as I said, I, I feel that that was definitely where a lot of what Trent would do in the future. He figured out on the fragile, and instead of just saying, "Hey, I, I don't have to just be loud and noisy," you know, and that's it was an amazing revelation for me. And I think one of the other things that is also so amazing about this album is that I can think about several different instances where music on this album is used to advertise movies, television programs. You know, I I remember like uh, 
when uh, Just Like You Imagine was used for the first trailer for the movie 300. I remember yes. just how that was just an amazing feeling just seeing that in there. The uh, first Avengers movie they used were in this together. Uh, the day the that whole blew, world went away. Blew my mind. That blew my mind when I was like, they're using my favorite bands, arguably their best song in the Avengers movie trailer. I couldn't believe it. Exactly. Was, that was something. The day the whole world went away, uh, that was uh, in Terminator Salvation, if I'm correct. I remember even The Sopranos, the sixth season, they used the mark has been made as a way, as one of the, for one of the promos they did for that show. Oh, so, I, I did not, I wasn't aware of that. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's such a great hallmark of how great this album was, is that it created great atmospheric music that other, you know, medias were, mediums were able to find to plug into it, which was great. And going back to what you said about wearing this together being your favorite song, my wedding vows, I stole lyrics from that song to use for my wedding vows. <laughs> you son of a bitch. That's great. Uh, spoilers for when you get to hear the proper episode whenever it comes out. But uh, I'm glad to hear that because I actually, that song always reminds me of my wife. And uh, also, uh, co-host Mark says that he wants that song played, like, at his, what, his it, well, he's already married. But if he has another kid at his funeral, it's, uh, I think, I think for some of us, that song is just so, like, it just hits you right in the heart. And uh, it's the intensity of the song, like, it's a good intensity of, uh, you know, during, like, the chorus. But also, it is, like you were saying earlier, like, you know, Trent Reznor's kind of figuring some things out. It's kind of a hopeful song. And that that was kind of in rare supply with Nine Snails to that point. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, that, as I said, that's a, this is the album where this is a guy at the bottom that sees that he could have a better life. He just has to figure out how. And I think one of the great things about when this song came out and the first time I heard it almost 20 years ago was that I sat there and thought, why can't I have someone in my life that I love to that extent? You know, you sit there and hear the way that just the pure emotion and drive, drive in there. You hear the lyrics, and it's like, that's that's what I want. I mean, I've looked at all my previous relationships and how badly I screwed those up, and it's like, I now I realize how much of an idiot I am, and I think this was the album that helped me get through everything that I was going through at the time. The only other time I think I've had an album do something to that scale was uh, Faith No More's Angel Dust, which was the last no. time I think I've been in that level of just low depression yeah well it's a sad thing that you associate that feeling with it but if you're going to pick an album to you know another real an album to to dig into with uh, your entire psyche that's a good one it's uh yeah, my god there's not a bad song on that album even the weird wacky songs like rv are still great songs um, yeah, it, it's one of those just weird albums, and it's even more weird, too, when you just, you know, hear about some of the turmoil going on behind the scenes and how some of the stuff, like some of the guitars, wasn't even Jim Martin just because they were having problems with them. I, I think this was truly one of those albums. I think some of your best albums you ever have are always made out of conflict. You know, when yeah, you have that kind of stress and adversity, that's that's why I always love, like, the backstory on uh, – Angel Just for the Land of Sunshine that Mike Patton wrote that song after being up for so many days straight just watching late night television. It was just all the infomercials just sticking in his head. It's funny, though, that that album still has what I think is probably my... Uh, there's a lot of great... Faith, Faith the Moore is an untouchable band. But uh, the the it's a really aggressive album in a lot of parts. But my favorite song in there is probably the cheesiest one. And uh, and it might just be because the video is one of the greatest videos ever made. Is the uh, everything's ruined? 
Uh, I'll be with the, the green screen footage in the background where they're just standing yeah. in front of it. And even even with all the shit that would go like, yeah, that band they almost broke up like how many, who knows how many times. They had a sense of humor quite often, and uh, I loved it. The other great callback in terms of my marriage when it comes to that album is that the last song played at my wedding reception was Midnight Cowboy. Oh wow, good job! So you really planned it all out. Are you are you and your wife still together? Yes, we're still together. Actually, this uh, Saturday, as of we're recording this, would be uh, we've been together at least 13 years, and this would be probably our 12, no, 11th year anniversary. Oh, that's awesome. That's probably because all the good music you had at your wedding. Well done. Mm-hmm. At, uh, I... at, at my wedding, we had a whole set list picked out, and then we made the mistake of having the DJ be one of our friends, and uh, he was so busy socializing that there really wasn't, didn't, there wasn't much music at our wedding. That was fine. It was still a good wedding. Yeah, I, I remember going to the DJ, and the DJ was having some problems, too, with our music because I gave him a list of about 20 songs, and I said, the problem I want with I have is that with most weddings, when you go to a wedding, you always hear the same songs over and over if you just bring in a traditional DJ. You know, you always hear Billy Jean by Michael Jackson. You always hear, you know, Celebration by Cool and the Gang. You always hear the same songs. I like said, I want to hear these songs right here. And I remember I had to fight with the DJ during the reception because one of the songs I put on there that has been played in three of my other friends' weddings was the song from Prince, Pussy Control. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I remember the DJ saying, well, Ed, I don't really want to play this because there's elderly people here and I, you know, I'm being represented. If I play a song like this, I'm like you don't have to worry about this. The people here know who I am. They'll exactly. be perfectly fine with it. You know, they, they are I, the company you keep. Right. And so I understand you wanting to try to protect your brand. And on the other hand here, we're the people that are going to pay and tip you right now. So don't worry about that. Well, before we digress any further, because I feel like we could all day long, um, with the fragile, did you happen to, uh, so let me, let me, let me start here. Are you, I'm, are you still a Nine Inch Nails fan to this day with the new music? Oh, absolutely. I, Nine Inch Nails, ironically enough, going back to what you asked about with me and my wife is that, uh, with Keith came out a couple months after me and my wife started first dating. I remember I had that in my CD player in my car. And I remember, like, she was listening to the song All the Love in the World, and she actually loved that song. And she was, like, her favorite band at the time was U2. So in that sense right there, you know, <laughs> it was great just hearing that, hey, you know what, you're not, you know, confused by my music. And, I, you know, from there, we got married. We had some uh, tragic losses in our life, and Nine Inch Nails actually kind of helped us through. I mean, I've seen Nine Inch Nails live probably about three times with my wife um, in a just amazing performances each time. I, uh, th- yeah, when they were last here in town, that was back in 2013 when they were uh, touring for Hesitation Marks. That was such mm-hmm. an amazing show with all the background. Uh, they had the uh, extra vocalists they had during that performance, which just made the show that much more better in so many different well, ways. Oh yeah, some of those some of those older songs with the back, with the uh, actually the big come down actually has some background vocalists when they occasionally play it live now. And uh, that's fantastic. And it also, it angers me every time. Well, it doesn't anger me. But they've never played uh, Where Is Everybody? And I feel like that song with background vocalists live would be amazing. So maybe maybe they'll do that in the next tour. Who knows? 
And I think that's going to be even the more interesting thing is you look at what Trent's been doing the past two years of this music, you know, with his EPs. It's, you know, it's very weird in the sense that I, I love what he's doing right now. And when I look at a lot of the comments on Facebook and on Twitter, what people think they're more recent albums, a lot of people tend to be very derogatory on it. And I don't think they understand that one of one of the favorite interviews I always remember from back in uh, the 90s, as I had a Rolling Stone magazine where they were interviewing Metallica and Lars Ulrich, for as much of a prick as he can be, the one moment of truth that he actually had in terms of the interview was they asked him about Load, which was being a rather, I wouldn't say crucified album at the time, but it was very diversive for what the fan base was. And the one it's thing not that, nearly not nearly as bad as people made it out to be. Load is no. just fine. Right, but for like the people that were like your people from the eighties, everybody was like, Oh, this sounds what what are you doing? You're selling out. But the one thing that Lars said, which was just perfect, was that you know, people ask me, Well, why don't you make more music like Master of Puppets? And Lars said, Well, we already made Path Master of Puppets. Why do we need to make that again? We want to try to do something different musically. I feel that's exactly what Trent's been doing is that I I would say from with teeth until hesitation marks, the music all had a very similar sound and vibe to it. I would say what he's been doing with these EPs the past couple of years has been almost very different in some different ways. You have some songs that have some of the same, I think, types of sounds and tones to it for the most part. I'm very curious to hear what their new album, Bad Witch, is going to sound like compared to what the other two EPs were. Oh, I can't wait. No, I can't wait to hear what this new one sounds like. And I can't wait to listen to them all. I know that they're not—they're probably like, you know, it's not supposed to be one big album, but that'll be a fun experiment to listen to them back to back to back. And uh, also, yeah, the, there's the one song on that second EP, the closing track, which name background I can't world. remember right now. Yeah, background. And I world. feel like that song is still good, and it feels like it somehow manages to mix like nine snails of the past, the present, and maybe the future all together. It's a uh, yeah, that song knocks me in my ass. So they, well, they still, they no doubt about it, they still got it. The refrain of that song is just perfect, where he's just sitting there asking, you know, is this what you really wanted? You know, I mean, is this what you want? And I think it's, once again, it's a crossroads where I think Trent realizes sometimes as we become too predictable, is that the life you really want for yourself, or do you want to forge on to do other different things? I mean, I think one of the other big differences with the EPs versus when Hesitation Marks came out is this, is that from like 2000, I think, eight until like about 2012, think about how much soundtrack work he did as well. I mean, he yeah. got an Oscar from the social network. He did the girl with the, you know, dragon, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, even got gone girl as an example. And then there was also the Vietnam documentary. So this, this is a guy that over a period of time has done a lot of different things and I think that's why when you listen to what he did soundtrack work, which is a lot of the melodic stuff, uh, the stuff with melodies that you would catch from the fragile, definitely I feel that's where he's like, you know what? I've done this now. I have this down to an art form. I want to do something different. Yeah, no, he's a, he, he definitely will not be put in a box at all. And uh, it's, it's, uh, that's why we keep coming back for good God, 30 something years. And I don't even know how long he's been around now, but, uh, that's uh that's fantastic and just to put a bow on it did you happen to listen to the uh the deviations releases that came out a few years ago uh yes and no the problem was is that 
that that was a hard one for me. And what I mean by is that I don't have any vinyl albums. It was one of those things yeah, that I know some people don't, love. Don't worry, listen, there there are no there's no shame here. Many of us weren't able to get those records the way we were supposed to. I'll leave it at that. But <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of it. It's like I almost thought, do I just buy the records because you get the digital download? You know, you have. Are you willing to spend eighty dollars to get the music you want? And some of the stuff you'll find out there on YouTube. If you try searching for it online using perhaps less than uh, reputable methods, you're not going to find anything out there that's really that complete. So. I've heard a lot of the stuff off it, which is definitely very interesting, but I do not have a full copy of it on hand, I'm afraid to say. Well, if you uh, if you ever stumble across it, let me say that it, it, it might be a, a fun uh, next step in uh, your your Nine Snails journeys, because some, some of those tracks they left on the shelf for some reason, I have no idea why they left them on the shelf. And even 20, uh, 19 years later, or yeah, I, I listened to it last year, and uh, I, I was just really surprised by how good some of that stuff was. And I was like, "Wow, this is their B material." So um, I, I suggest it as a as a fan of the Fragile. It's definitely worth uh, seeking out. Yeah, I mean, I have almost every other format of every release they have. God knows how many B sides, CD singles, and other rarities. That has been probably the one in, that I don't have and. It, it's also one of those things when you get older, like I turned 42 this year, part of it's your priorities. You have kids, you start mm-hmm. realizing that, Hey, this was always a passion of mine, but you also can't ignore your other aspect of your life. So yeah. I, I'm sure if I had more dedication, I could find the copy that I'm looking for, like the bowl and I've spent dollars on the, you know, music itself. But yeah, that's, it's something that I want to do and listen to, but I've not had that opportunity. Well, believe me, pal, I understand, and that's also why you know you stick to what you know, and you, as much as you want to explore new music, you're like, ah, oh, but I got my like eight favorite bands, and I, I'm really just going to stick to them because I'm old and I have kids, and there's <laughs> only so many hours in the day. And then also, when your favorite band says, oh, we're going to go on tour in half a year, but you can only buy tickets in person, you really debate, oh shit, am I going to go buy tickets for this show? Which is what I'm thinking about if I'm going to do Saturday or not. I don't know if that uh, is that tour coming by you at all. No, that's it's depressing. The closest stop they have by us is Chicago at this point. So, you know, if I want to drive eight to ten hours to Chicago or take a train or a plane, I could. But yeah, that's when I heard when I saw the release. I mean, it was probably the most comical releases I've seen in social media. Their explanation of why they're doing the in-person ticket purchase, you know, program. I remember with hesitation yeah. marks had it with the pre-sales where your name was printed up on the ticket and you were the only person you could pick it up. But yeah, I, I totally agree with Trent's mentality that secondary markets have truly ruined a lot of the concert experiences out there. And I understand there's other things. A lot of people probably won't be happy with this methodology of getting your tickets either. But, you know, I'm actually more curious why there's not really a lot more dates on this. I keep hoping that they're going to announce more dates on this tour because I think they only have about maybe 15 to 20 stops on this tour? Yeah, no, there, there's a, it definitely isn't more than 20. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they had, They actually added some more in between the first announcement just last week, but it was more just like in L.A. instead of two shows, they're doing four now. And like they're right. doing like maybe two shows in New York instead of one. But, uh, you know, I, I know they, I doubt they'll make it a common practice, but it's an interesting experiment. Yeah, I... 
you have to try something different. I mean, I, I know there's been so many different musicians and groups out there that have tried finding ways to circumvent Ticketmaster and trying to circumvent secondary markets. But, you know, that's that's just the problem you're going to have with modern technology is as much as it makes things more convenient, the problem you have is that you have people that know how to exploit it to unfortunate extents. Yes, the Internet is the greatest and the worst thing in the world. It's uh, No doubt about that. Now, one question I have for you is this, because I remember it was probably about two months ago you posted as you were preparing for the podcast about this album that you were saying tracks one through, I think you said through either eight or nine, I can't remember on the one side, left side or, you know, of the album was probably the most solid pack of album songs itself. I guess that if there was one question I asked, and I always find this a curious question to ask people, because it's always easy to say what you love. What song on The Fragile do you like the least? Oh, yes. That's not a problem. Uh, <laughs> it's it's probably, it's, it's, I think, I hey, Town, do you need crackers? Town wants crackers. Um, it's Please. Please is the one that really just does not get me going. How about, uh, it's just, the, the main problem I have with it is that it sounds like, and I don't mind Smashing Pumpkins, but for some reason, the vocal delivery in that song just sounds like Billy Corgan on a bad day to me. <laughs> you know, I, I would say, like, if I had to compare the two, you know, sides, you have the left side or right side, if, if you have, you know, obviously the DVD. The left side, I always felt, was probably one of the strongest, you know, of the two sides. And the other album itself, I would say the first, I would say there's definitely about seven songs on there that are amazing songs. There's songs such as like I'm looking to joining finally joining you. I love tremendously. The big come down's amazing on there. Mm -hmm. You know, where is everybody? But if there was actually one song that I don't like and it's a song that got limited release, I don't like Starfuckers. I Oh I, yeah, I, you see. I yeah. find that's the one song that feels so out of place in the album itself. It is it is it's totally out of place. I it it's you know, sometimes I try to like not use the phrase guilty pleasures because everybody should be able to enjoy what they like. But it is probably a guilty pleasure for me. Like, I know it's not a good song, and I know it's kind of out of place, but at the end of the day, the end of it really gets going and rocking for me. And I feel like, uh, at least between that and The Perfect Drug, we were spared Trent Reznor making an entire album of, uh, like, breakbeat uh, techno rock. So, you know, it, it's almost like, the, like those two bullets, which I, I like both those songs. Perfect Drug's actually a legitimately good song. But between those two songs, I'm like, all right, this is as much as Trent really dabbled in trying to be like the Chemical Brothers with guitars. So uh, it could have been worse. I don't know. But, yeah, it's yeah, way I, out of place, that song. That song is incredibly out of place. Everything like, on the album is pretty pretty heartfelt. And then that album's kind of just like a big like – it's like a Mad Magazine come to life. <laughs> it's just – uh, like another yeah. song that was recorded during, I think, around that same period of time, but it was released about a year or two later on the Tomb Raider soundtrack, was Deep. And I like Deep. Wow. Deep is a great Deep song. Deep is great. Deep and is awesome. I, I will and that's why I, I hear a song like Deep, and it's like, you know what? That should have been put onto this album, you know, and left on yeah. there. But going back to what you said, there was a lot of stuff. I mean, you get over, like, 24 songs on an album like that. you got to make some self-editing and make some cuts on there, which make it hard. Well, I'm just glad to hear that you like. I'm looking forward to joining you finally because I feel like that song's not appreciated enough. That's and that goes back. That goes back to what I said about the whimsical nature of Trent. Is that you hear you have a guy that 
he just seems like he's just kind of whimsically lamenting, you know, just his life itself in so many different ways. And I love the tone. I love that. It's also one of the few songs that doesn't utilize a lead guitar on the actual song itself. It's just the bass line, the drum, and the keyboards on that. It's just such a great song. Oh, when those drums at the end come in, it is something else. They creep yes. up on you. <laughs> All right. Well, the uh, the toddler is telling me it's time to go. But I uh, I appreciate you making the time to give me a call and also be our first uh, – I guess no. You'll be you'll be the first call-in uh, listener that we've had. So there you go. You're breaking ground. Yeah, I, for me, something like this. I mean, that's you know, months ago when you said you're going to reach out, and that was the first one. Like, hey, if you want somebody to talk about the fragile, that's an album I'll easily discuss with no problems whatsoever. And yeah, you know, like well, like I say, if you if you love this album, you love it with all your heart. So nope, no. Yeah, and you guys are doing great work and everything. I'd especially just doing a lot of the deep cuts over the past couple of years with the nothing years and everything. I think I it's, it's weird when a lot of times you look at Trent Reznor and you think about how much, like you talk about how, you know, rap families are, you had like bad boy records, you had the East coast and West coast, and you had all these different labels. I really feel that that's what Trent was doing. Let's say the late nineties was that he was almost developing his own label itself and his own style and culture and I felt like, you know, amazing that he would go on to outlive all of that. So, Yeah, no, he, the, the the legacy, he didn't even try to have a legacy. He couldn't help it. He's got one. Yep. Uh, so where can uh, where can people find you if you want to be found doing things on the Internet? Well, if you want to find me on the Internet, I have my own podcast that I do, which is the Burning Bridges with Mike Spragle podcast. I have been trying to be more frequent about it. Life is funny like that. I, we had a episode I tried recording where I reviewed the black hole from Disney a few uh, months back, but that episode the file got corrupted and lost. So I just did an episode on just digital content and how we, you know, a lot of it's just retrospective. The things we loved when we were younger, they still hold up today. So you can find that on most of your podcast feeds. It's on iTunes as well as on uh, Google Play. Um, otherwise, there's also our Burning Bridges uh, with Mike Spiegel Facebook page and at Bridges. Uh, podcast at, uh, on Twitter as well. So you can find that or just follow me, the person itself, on Twitter. I'm Spriggle Rock at uh, Twitter. Uh, I always love good conversations and debates. I don't think we're Twitter people. I need to follow you on Twitter. We are, uh, we, uh, we're, uh, we're Facebook buddies these days, but uh, I will find you on Twitter. And that would be, uh, yes, the yeah, I just started getting active again. I've been using Twitter mostly just to follow people for the past year and have been very quiet. I'm starting to get back into it. It's just such a Twitter became a weird toxic environment for a while, and I just stopped interacting with people. Now I'm like, I just don't care anymore. I'm just gonna go back to yeah. Me. Yes, nothing can stop you now because you don't care anymore. Exactly. So there you go. <laughs> All right, Mike. Well, I will. Uh, I will see you uh, on the internet pretty soon, and. Uh, Thank you for listening, and thank you for taking the time to call in. Thank you, Stephen. All right, buddy. Talk to you later. Yep. And there you have it, folks. Another bonus episode. What a fun, fun phone call. So until next time, this has been Pod Like a Hole. We hope that you enjoyed this little bonus episode, but we're going to get right down to grass attacks on the next one. See you then. Bye-bye. Thank you.